Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek today. And as that video uh, we just watched indicates, this Sunday is a Sunday that we, along with thousands of churches all across this country, join together in being able to promote sanctity of human life. And particularly this morning, the interest is placed on the life of the unborn. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 clearly teaches us that human life is created in God's image. Furthermore, from what we learn in Psalm 139, where King David describes himself as being formed or knit together in the womb of his mother, we recognize that God's creation of human life begins long before a baby is ever actually born into the world, but actually begins with conception. And therefore, the sanctity of human life extends to the unborn. A Southern Baptist, our statement of faith, is found in the Baptist faith and message. And pertaining to this issue, the statement of faith for the Baptist says this, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our lives and in human society. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. Furthermore, our statement of faith goes on to say this, we should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Now, if I were to just immediately say to you Proverbs 31, many of you in this room would immediately think, well, Proverbs 31 is a, is a passage that primarily deals with, with women and, and with wives and with motherhood, and you would be right. Proverbs 31 is, is really a, a collection of sayings written by a mother who wrote these things to her eventual son who would become king. And in that passage, she mostly talks about what characteristics he ought to look for in a wife. But she also gives him some instruction with regard to when he is king and he is ruling, how he should rule. And in Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, we read these words. She tells him to open your mouth for the speechless, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We could rightly summarize the king's mother's words this way. She told him that he should be a voice for the voiceless and a defense for the defenseless. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we who believe that all life is precious, we too should heed those words and put those same words into practice in our own lives. To contend for and to speak on behalf of the unborn who are both voiceless and defenseless, necessitates that Christians speak up and that we condemn the practice of abortion. Millions of unborn babies are aborted every year in this country and around the world. In the United States alone, since abortion was legalized in 1973, there have been an estimated 60 plus million babies aborted. That is, that is more than the population of the state of Texas and the state of New York combined. As Christians, we must avow 
that no human life is worthless. In fact, because of our faith and because of the message of the gospel, Christians should be the ones stating it the loudest that all human life is precious. Regardless of skin color, regardless of age, regardless of disability, regardless of economic status, and regardless of whether that life is in or out of the womb. Because human life has been invested with a special dignity, because it was ultimately created by Almighty God, then Christians should, as the Baptist faith and message states, seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. My prayer, my prayer is that you will think on these things, that you would accept the responsibility that you have as a believer in Christ. I would ask that you would join with me in praying that God would raise up men and women in our governmental systems who would overturn previous decisions and seek to pass laws that would bring about the eventual end of abortion upon demand. I also pray that you would spend time in prayer for those who are considering abortion. Pray that, pray that they will come to know how precious the life is that they carry in their womb. I ask that you pray for the organizations and the outreaches that attempt to help those mothers make good choices to keep their babies. Organizations like the Pregnancy Resource Center of Gwinnett that we as a church family support directly. Pray that those workers and that those volunteers are able to make an eternal impact on those who are considering abortion. And pray for those whose lives have been affected by abortion. Pray that Pray that they would come to know the forgiveness of our Savior, His great love for them. Pray that, pray that God might bring conviction and that that conviction would be met with repentance and that that repentance would then issue forth in, in reconciliation, both between them and God and between them and mankind. I believe that if we do that, then we will be a voice for the voiceless. I believe we would be a defense for the defenseless. And in doing so, I believe we would be declaring the sanctity of all human life and giving glory to our Creator God. If you've brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you have, please take them out and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And we as a church family continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, and I, I find it to be in God's providence and according to God's plan that we find ourselves reading and studying a passage on this particular Sunday that discusses babies, it discusses little children, discusses infants. And I think it's fitting for a day like today. As I, I, I read this passage, I want you to gain a glimpse into how Jesus responds to the little children when they come to him. I want you to first gain a glimpse into how the disciples respond to the children but then I want us to, to focus our attention on the love and the actions that Jesus displays for the little children. And I, I have to confess to you, as the title to my sermon illustrates, and this entire week as I've been studying and, and thinking on this passage, the, the song that we all probably learned as kids has been running through my mind. And I'm going to sing it for you. I want you to sing it with me. Because I know you know it. And it really should serve as the theme, the jumping off point for us to discuss this passage. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red 
and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Now I want you to think about that. I want that to be in the back of your mind as we look at this passage this morning and as we consider the love that Jesus has and the actions that he displays toward children. And then I want us to recognize that those actions of love not only have implications for the children, but they have implications for every single one of us in this room this morning as well. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says this, Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms. He laid his hands on them. And he blessed them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you that it instructs us instructs us about life, about eternity. It points us to the priorities that are your priorities. And oftentimes we find that our priorities conflict with yours. Our assessment of things conflicts with yours. I pray that this passage this morning would redirect us, help us to understand how great is our salvation. Help us to understand just how important it is for us to come to you in humility. I pray this in the name of Christ and I pray it for his sake. Amen. As we begin our study this morning, I want to point you to all of the activity that is being described in verse 13. As a matter of fact, verse 13 really sets up everything else that we're going to look at. Verse 13 tells us three different sets of activity that is taking place. And I want you to see the first one that we learn about in verse 13, it says that they were bringing their little children to Jesus. Now, the they is, is left a little ambiguous. We don't know who the they is, but I think that it's, it's quite appropriate, and I think we would be very safe to assume that it was the parents of these little children who were bringing them to Jesus. Now, that's the first activity that we learn about in this passage, and we learn that that activity was being done in order to produce the second activity. The second activity was they were bringing them to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to bless them. He might touch them. And in that touch was also assumed there would be a blessing that would happen as well. Now, we've seen how this has taken place in, in, in the, the grand scheme of things. Jesus, his reputation would go before him. Everybody would know how, how popular he was. He was a holy man. He would go into a town or into a center of, of, of population. His, his word would get out that he was there, and then crowds would come. And they would gather around and press in upon Jesus. And in many of those crowds, there would be parents who were bringing their babies because they wanted this holy man of God to, to touch their children and to bless them. We can probably imagine what the scene looked like. Mamas and daddies holding their little babies, their little, their little toddlers. 
And they're standing in, in groups or in lines and they're hoping to get a glimpse to find out exactly where Jesus is so that they can make their way to him. Little ones are running around and, and, and playing with one another. We've all seen scenes that are similar to that. Well, that scene was taking place here. And what they were hoping was that Jesus would take their little babies or their little children up in their arms, that he would touch their head, that he would pat them, that he would say a blessing over them. That was their parents' desire. So their action of bringing their children to Jesus was a desire that Jesus might complete an action of touching and blessing the children. But then we notice that these parents, what they hoped to have happen was not happening. They were not getting their children to Jesus. And the reason why is because of the third set of actions in this verse, and that is the disciples were rebuking the parents who were bringing their children to Jesus. And in the rebuke is implied the, the, the action of preventing the parents from gaining access to Christ. And it is there that I want us to begin kind of looking and, and hanging our thoughts on, on what takes place in this passage. And I've provided you an outline that's really simple. It's just, it's just got a few descriptive phrases to sort of help us just see how the passage walks through. And so the very first point that I want you to note this morning is based upon what we've just seen the disciples do. And it's this. Jesus' disciples mistake and their misunderstanding. The disciples mistake and misunderstanding. What becomes obvious is that these disciples made a mistake. In, in rebuking and preventing those parents from getting their little children to Jesus. We know it was a mistake because we learn later that Jesus was greatly displeased by what they did. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want you to know is, is that with most mistakes, there's always a reasoning behind it. Most of us, when we make mistakes, there's, there's something that either we've misunderstood or something that we've gotten wrong somewhere that has caused us to do something that we should not have done. I believe that's the case here. Why, why do you think the disciples prevented the parents from bringing their children to Jesus? Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that the disciples saw themselves as Jesus', Jesus guardians. They were there to kind of control the crowd and, and, and sort of protect Jesus. And, and we would understand, I think that, that's understandable for them, because after all, we've seen Jesus pressed in upon by many, many crowds many times through our study through the Gospel of Mark. And every time it happened, that created great pressure upon Jesus. We know that not just the, the, the people themselves, but the needs of the people. Jesus came across many who were demonic, demonically possessed, that he had to heal. Many of them had brought their own sicknesses, and they wanted Jesus to heal them. And that brought great pressure on Jesus. Also, we know inside those crowds were many of the religious leaders and the political leaders of his day who were trying to ensnare Jesus and trip him up, just like we studied last week. He had that great pressure upon him as well. And then, let's not forget the disciples themselves. The disciples put a pressure on Jesus. They, they needed to learn. Jesus was having to teach them. And they didn't get it all the time, as this passage lets us understand. And so there was a lot of pressure on Jesus, and so the disciples take it upon themselves to be the ones who, who, who stopped these others from coming. Matter of fact, I believe that what they thought was Jesus doesn't need another headache. He doesn't need another drain on his energy, especially, especially coming from those lowly and important as little children are. Now, it's that attitude toward, toward the little children that, that may kind of surprise us a little bit. And let me say this, the, the Hebrews, the, the Jews tended to value children more than, than other pagan societies and more Gentile societies did in that first century world. They tended to, 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 to cater to children a little bit more, but in no way, shape, or form the way that we do in our culture today. Children in that day and time had no standing in society. 
they, they, there was no, there, there was not, they were not petted and, and, and treated in much the way that we pet and treat our children today. Particularly young children, little babies, infants. They were seen more as liabilities than they were assets. They couldn't work. They couldn't contribute to the, to the family, uh, family's income. And as such, even the disciples we see here, they adopt this negative attitude toward these little kids, toward these little ones who had nothing to offer Jesus. And, and, and what they figured was is that Jesus' blessing upon these little children would do nothing in return for him. There was no quid pro quo. He couldn't expect to receive anything in return from the children. And so why, it, with all the pressure that was on him, he needed to spend his time with others rather than these. So the attitude of the disciples seems to be, who do your parents think you are? Bringing these little kids to Jesus. He doesn't have time for them. He's got more important folks to minister to. Now in displaying that attitude, the disciples, as we've seen in previous studies through our our study through this gospel continue to show themselves to be prideful. They continue to show themselves to be spiritually insensitive. And they also show themselves to be slow learners. It's no wonder then that we see Jesus respond to their mistake and their misunderstanding so vehemently. In fact, notice the next bullet point on your outline this morning, and it's this Jesus' rebuke and correction. His rebuke and correction. As I mentioned earlier, the disciples. Action brought about a sharp response from Jesus. Mark says that he was greatly displeased. Some of your versions that you're reading this morning uses the, the, the English word indignant. He became indignant at, at what they had done. We might put it in our common vernacular this way and say Jesus was hot. He got angry. And as an expression of his, of his anger and his displeasure, notice that Jesus rebukes, he chastises his disciples. Notice what Jesus says to them in his indignation. In fact, Kent Hughes notes this. He says his words have a clipped and a staccato ring to them. It's like he says this, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. Now, what I want you to notice is that is, that is an open invitation for little children to come to Jesus right there. That is an open invitation. It's an open invitation that is stated positively on the front end. Let the little children come to me. Permit them to come to me. That is a, a positive statement. And then it's reinforced negatively by looking at the side and say, do not forbid them to come. It is a positive statement that is reinforced by a negative statement. And as Grant Osborne has put it, Jesus could hardly be more firm in his resolve to welcome children into his presence and bless them. And as such, his rebuke of the actions of his disciples indicate to us just how warped and, and really how, how much their misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what his kingdom was like had actually gotten to. But listen, if, if the disciples had distorted Jesus' view of children and they had misunderstood who it was that was, had standing before Jesus, then Jesus corrects that with the next statement that he makes. He corrects their misunderstanding by what he says next. Notice that in referring to the little children, Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. The ESV translates it this way and says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, what did Jesus mean? Well, I think it's helpful here if we consider the parallel passage. 
Mark writes about it here in Mark 10. Luke writes about this same event in his gospel. And when Luke describes what takes place here, he uses a different word to describe the little children. Matthew and Mark use a Greek word that, that indicates it was little children, and that certainly can mean from babies all the way up to, to, to little kids running around, even, even older, 8, 9, 10 years old in that society. But when Luke writes this story, he tells us that, G, that the ones coming to him, he uses a Greek word that, that refers to infants and babies. Now, any of us who've ever had little babies, we've ever helped take care of little babies, know this. Little babies can't do anything for themselves. Little babies are totally dependent on a caretaker to do for them. They can't feed themselves, can't clean themselves up, they can't defend themselves, they can't contribute to conversations. Infants are completely dependent upon outside help and assistance, yet Jesus says it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. So how are we to understand that? Is Jesus saying that little children, little infants, little babies, that they are the only ones who will inherit the kingdom of God? No, it's not what he's saying. But friends, he is saying this. He is saying that the same thing that characterizes a little child, a sense of helpless dependence, well, that is the same thing that will characterize those who are going to inherit the kingdom. See, in, in considering Jesus' words here, I'm reminded of his very first words in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a radical statement straight out of the gate in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the word that he uses for poor is the Greek word patokos. It is a word that literally means you have come to the end of yourself. You have nothing of your own for which you can boast. You have become a person who must live a beggar life. You have nothing of your own in your own bank account that you can boast of at all. It means to be completely dependent upon outside help in order for you to survive. Jesus said it is the poor in spirit. In other words, it is from a spiritual standpoint that Jesus says those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven will be those who are utterly bankrupt, absolutely devoid of any credits to their spiritual bank account. So if we allow these passages to kind of comment, if we, if we understand what Jesus says there in the Sermon on the Mount, we allow that to help us interpret what he means here when he's talking about the little children and them being the ones who are the, of the kingdom, then the such as these that Jesus is referring to there are contrary to, to what his disciples thought, contrary to, to thinking that it's going to be the strong and the mighty and the self-sufficient and the powerful. Rather, what Jesus is saying is it's, it's, it's going to be the small and the insignificant and the needy and the helpless and the totally dependent ones who have no standing, those will be the ones that will be a part of the kingdom. To put it this way, he says those who are being the kingdom have to be like little infants in the fact that they recognize that they are weak, they are helpless, and they are dependent. And Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But I want you to know Jesus isn't done. 
He's still got more to say. He's corrected the disciples' misunderstanding with regard to who is going to be in the kingdom. But then Jesus goes to point out that such a correct understanding then necessitates a correct response. Verse 15, notice Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. As, as the New Testament scholar William Lane has put it, this solemn pronouncement is directed to the disciples, but it has pertinence for all men confronted by the gospel because it speaks to the condition of entrance into the kingdom. I would say it this way. What Jesus says to the disciples splashes off of them and gets on every one of us. And here's how. Because what he says, as Kent, Kent Hughes has paraphrased it, is this. He says, no one will get into the kingdom of God unless he or she receives God's salvation like a child. No one. What does that mean? Well, how does one receive the kingdom of God as a child? Well, understand this. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you come to God in your innocence. Oftentimes we look at little children, look at little babies. We just think, oh, how innocent they are. If you've ever raised a child, you will know there's nothing innocent about them. They don't call them the terrible twos and threes for nothing. No, we don't come, we don't come to Christ in innocence. In fact, the Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. We come to him in our guilt, not our innocence. We come to him guilty because every single one of us in this room, regardless of our age and our experience, have sinned against a holy God. We don't come to him as children because we're innocent. Rather, we come to Christ as a little child, meaning that we recognize our guilt. We recognize the fact that we are weak. Not only are we guilty, we are incapable of helping ourselves. Because of our sin, we have nothing within us to ever be able to commend us to God. The only thing that we can do is to come to Him just as a child comes to Him with His hands open and nothing in them, begging and pleading for God's grace to come into our lives because that's the only hope that we have. And brothers and sisters, regardless of your age, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room has to come to Christ this way. You see, coming to Christ as a little child means recognizing your spiritual poverty. The Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are the poor in spirit, one has reinterpreted and paraphrased that verse and kind of twisted it to make it say this. And, and I, I love the way that this, that he's good. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So based upon that, let me ask you this morning. Have you come to God that way? Have you recognized your absolute poverty spiritually? Have you come to the recognition that you are just like a little infant, unable to help yourself and in absolute dependence? Come to Christ and say, I need your help. Because the Bible says that's how we must come to Christ. And if the only way that we would ever hope to be blessed and to inherit the kingdom of heaven is if we come to him, hands open, empty, looking to him for help. So, in our text, the disciples have made a mistake by pre preventing the little children from coming to Jesus because they completely misunderstood the gospel. 
and the requirements for entry into God's kingdom. Jesus, however, has indignantly rebuked his disciples, and in the process, he set the record straight, saying that it is only when a person acknowledges and embraces their lowly, helpless, and dependent state that they will ever be a part of the kingdom. Now notice what happens in the last verse. Jesus, he gets those little babies up in his arms. He takes the little children up into his arms. He lays his hands on them. And he blesses them. That leads me to the third descriptive phrase, the final point on your outline this morning. It's this, Jesus' touch and blessing. Jesus' touch and blessing. I want you to know this is the second time in as many chapters as we find that Jesus has taken a child up into his arms. We saw it also back in chapter 9. But here we get this picture of Jesus and just how loving our Lord was, particularly toward children. And I want you to know I love this picture. I love this picture. I love this picture of Jesus with these babies in his arms and loving on them. And I love it because I love babies. And I think it's because I'm so much like a baby in a lot of ways. And, and my, my hairline and babies' hairlines are so similar when they're first born. But whatever the case may be, I love children. I love when we have our parent-child dedications. When I get to hold those little children in my arm and walk them around and show them off to you, I love that moment. I love sometimes to get in the back and if I get a half a chance, I'll steal a child from their mama or their daddy back there and I'll hold on to them and pat them because I love kids. I love it when I go home and I get on my couch at my house and my four kids pile on top of me, either in my chair or on the couch. I love that. I love snuggling with them. But as much as I love all of that, and as sweet as this picture of Jesus holding and touching these babies are, the implication of this passage is not for us to become more like Jesus in loving on kids. The point being made here is not that you and I need to become more enamored with the young. Now let me say that. I hope you do become more enamored with children. I'd love to have more men and more women involved in our ministry to our children and our youth in this church. I would love to have more of you who would take it upon yourself to realize God has called me to the weak and the helpless and to those who can need it and, and get you involved in our good news clubs that reaches out with the gospel in our local schools. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see many of you taking the opportunity to serve in areas where it's not very glamorous and you're helping little babies that can't do anything for themselves, either feeding them or changing their diapers. I'd love to see that. Please understand this. Do not walk away from this text thinking that that is the application point for this passage because it is not. No. Jesus touched and blessed these little children because in doing so, He demonstrated that the, the touch and the blessing is, is available to all who will come to Him just as those little children did. In other words, this passage is not only a passage that describes who the kingdom of heaven belongs to, it is also and necessarily an invitation to all to come to him as a child. And it's a picture of what awaits every person who will. And listen, what awaits is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ who offers you that which you have longed for and desire the most, love, acceptance, hope, joy. 
and life that is abundant and eternal. That is what Jesus offers to all who will come to him as a child. We kind of began this sermon singing Jesus loves little children, and I think that was absolutely appropriate and perfect to start us. But as this text has moved, hopefully you've been able to see that it's not just that Jesus loves little children, but that he also makes it more personal, which is why I think it's very appropriate for us to sing another little children's song that we've probably all learned. Again, I'm going to sing it. You can sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Now hold on just a second. Here's another verse. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let this little child come. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I leave you this morning with my sermon in a sentence, which is this. By welcoming and blessing little children, Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom of God belongs to the weak, the helpless, and the dependent who cannot earn their salvation, but rather receive it by simple faith as an undeserved gift. So on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, I pray that we will be mindful and that we would be in prayer for those precious, voiceless, defenseless and helpless lives that are in danger of being aborted and may we pray that change will come so that that danger that they face will eventually be removed. I also pray that we come to recognize that each of us must become like those little ones. That we must humble ourselves. Being convinced of our sin and our helpless condition apart from our Lord's work of grace and that we come to Him in faith trusting in him, trusting in him alone to save us and to give us eternal life because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God.